Today on Something You Should Know, two simple strategies that will have you making fewer mistakes. Then a better way to solve problems. Rather than find the solution, change the problem. You'll hear people say, what's the real problem? As if there was only one problem or cause for whatever's going on. But for most of the problems in our lives, there's more than one way of approaching it. Also, when you have a cold or the flu, the doctor recommends bed rest. But does that really do anything? And understanding human biases, they shape your thoughts and decisions, and you probably don't even notice it. One of the really potent biases in our lives is known as the endowment effect. Whatever we own becomes extra valuable to us. And the risk is you get too attached. That's why we have storage units people rent, because they just can't part with their things. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. I'm going to start today by talking about mistakes, the mistakes you make. And we all make mistakes. It's human to make mistakes every day. But wouldn't it be good to be able to cut down on the number of mistakes you make? So here are two techniques to cut down on errors. First, get more sleep. Lack of sleep is a huge factor in the number of mistakes we make. A study done at Harvard looked at medical residents who worked 24-hour shifts, and they found that if those medical residents worked more than five 24-hour shifts in one month, their error rate for errors that actually harm patients went up 700%. And number two, make a checklist of steps before you tackle any project. The New England Journal of Medicine published a study that looked at what happens when doctors make a pre-surgical checklist of things they need to do during surgery. The results were that doctors who did make the checklist cut their surgical death rate of their patients by 50%. And that is something you should know. So, let's say you have a problem. What do you do? Well, you try to figure out the solution to that problem. But wait a minute. Maybe, just maybe, the problem you're trying to solve, maybe that problem isn't the real problem. Maybe you're trying to solve the wrong problem. And what you need to do is reframe the problem as something else entirely. This will make perfect sense in just a moment as you meet Thomas Waddell Waddellsborg. He's author of the book, What's Your Problem? To Solve Your Toughest Problems, Change the Problems You Solve. Hey, Thomas, welcome to Something You Should Know. Hello, Mike, and thanks for inviting me. So let's start with an example of what you mean by somebody trying to solve the wrong problem. For for instance. I think my favorite example is, um, imagine you are the owner of an office building and uh, people in the building, they're complaining about the elevator or the lift that, you know, it's slow, they have to wait, it's annoying. And if you just take that problem for granted, well, what most people do is they try to make the elevator faster. They say the problem is the elevator is slow. Let's figure out how to make it faster. Can we upgrade the motor? Do we need to go out and buy a new elevator? And if you ask actual landlords or building managers about this, they often try something very different, which is to put a mirror up in the hallway next to the elevator. 
Because what happens is people, of course, they arrive and they go, oh, that's beautiful. And they, and they forget that they're waiting for the elevator. Now, that's like a, a very simple example of the idea that sometimes the best way forward is not to solve the problem that's put in front of you, but instead to ask, is there a different or better problem to solve here? Instead of trying to make the elevator faster, can we make people forget that they're waiting? That, that's probably the, the, the most easy example to remember what reframing really is. So, but in that example, making the elevator faster isn't necessarily the wrong problem. It's just a different problem. Exactly. And I think that what, what you're saying is really drilling down to the core of uh, a myth around problems and how we think about them. People often, you, you'll hear people say, what's the real problem? as if there was only one problem or, or, or cause for whatever's going on. That's maybe true in some contexts where, where you have like, you know, if you're in a manufacturing situation where a lot of these problem-solving frameworks started. But for most of the problems in our lives, there's more than one way of approaching it. If, if you have, you know, you have problems with your daughter who doesn't want to do her homework. You have a challenge in your family relationships. You have something going on in your career that, that you're struggling with. Very often, there, it's, it's not just one thing. There, it's kind of a, a more fussy problem. And that's good news because that typically means there are more than one way of going about trying to solve it. So that's a great example because I think it perfectly illustrates your point. But... Rather than trying to make the elevator faster, that instead you put mirrors up next to the elevator so people can look at themselves and, and not realize how long they're waiting, that's very clever. It's very brilliant. It's, and it's probably something I would have never thought of, but, but it's just clever. So how do you become more clever? I mean, how do you get there? How do you come up with that? Let's not try to make the elevator faster. Let's come up with a clever solution to something else. It, it's just so funny that most people aren't that good at this because it's not something we've been paying so much, like a lot of attention to. There's, if you look at everything within the space of problem solving, there's so much focus on this question of how do we brainstorm for better solutions? And there's comparatively little attention paid to the, to the fact that solutions is only one half of this the other half is the ability to to think creatively about a problem and that's really the, the core thing that i'm trying to teach people in my work i'm if you wanted the one sentence uh, kind of summary i'm trying to upgrade the world's ability to solve problems by making them better at reframing the problem itself but how do you get better at doing that as a as a concept when it, it, it seems very individual, like it's very much, oh, mirrors, oh, yeah, mirrors. But how does that help me then the next time when there's another problem totally unrelated? I'd say the very first step is just to understand what reframing is. And that, you know, that you can explain to people by using the elevator story or similar. But when, if you want to get a little bit more tactical and kind of get an approach for how to do this more systematically, I like to use a very simple three-step process that's based. It's almost like taking a step back, thinking, and then moving forward again. And uh, the, the very first, whatever problem you're facing, the very first step is just to go in and say, wait a second, before we start jumping into solutions, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Literally just, you know, 
put it down on a piece of paper in two sentences or explain it to somebody you're sitting with, what's the problem we're trying to solve? It's such a simple question, but sometimes it can just prevent people from falling in love with, with some kind of solution that that's not in the right direction. So that, that's probably the, the central habit. What you want to do next is go in and have maybe even a five-minute conversation. It doesn't have to be very long about whether there's a different way of looking at the problem. Is there another way of thinking, is this really about the speed of the elevator? Or is there something else going on? Are people really tired of the landlord? Uh, is it because everybody goes to lunch at the same point, uh, point in time? Basically, a five-minute conversation with one other person trying to brainstorm not on the solution, but on the problem itself and trying to challenge the way you see it. And then... The third step at the end is really just to move forward in some way. The, the, the big danger, I think, with a lot of problem-solving methods is that you can get, get stuck in thinking mode. I mean, paralysis by analysis is a real thing. You always have to end your, your thinking about a problem by figuring out something to like take a step forward and try to learn more, maybe try prototyping something or, or do a small experiment or talk to somebody who's involved in the problem. So that's that's really the, you know, the, the, the practical process for doing this, irrespective of what you're dealing with, is to go in and say, what's the problem? Spend five minutes trying to challenge your thinking about it and then move forward. So give me some examples of problems that you could apply that process to. I'll share one of my favorites. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Tanya, uh, Tanya Luna, she's an, she's an author as well, and her husband, Brian, they had a uh, great marriage just when they, when they started out, but they had one problem, which was they tended to get into a little bit like a bitter fights over small things, like who walked the dog, the budget, like everybody fights, but both Tanya and Brian kind of felt that, that their conflicts got a little too, too acerbic. And what was interesting, so Tanya told me, like, yeah, in the beginning, we sat down and we thought about our backgrounds, like we're from different cultures, how do we grow up? You know? And that didn't really help them. Like all of these historically oriented, like Sigmund Freud type thinking, maybe it was true, but it didn't really help them change the situation. And then Tanya did something interesting. She started looking for what's called bright spots. Uh, a bright spot is, is a way to think about, you know, looking for instances of when you may already have solved the problem in the past. And that, that happened to be her and Brian at some point. They had a conversation about the budget over breakfast. And that was totally painless. And after that, they, they stopped and say, wait. The budget is normally a very hard topic for us to discuss. How, how did we, how, how, how did things go so well this time? And they realized that the problem wasn't their backgrounds or cultural habits or whatever. It was that most of their fights started after 10 in the evening. So, that, you know, they, they were just tired and, and cranky. And so Tank and Brian instituted, uh, the, uh, instigated this rule in their relationship, the, 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 the 10 o'clock rule, which basically means that if your spouse bring up, brings up something contentious and it's after 10 o'clock, then you say, honey, it's after 10 o'clock, we'll talk tomorrow. And she credits that with like something like 80% of their fights just stopped. They, they just stopped being an issue once they understood that solving for the, 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 the time they had the fights was really the most effective approach. So how do you get to that point? How do you get to that 
let's not fight after 10 o'clock point, there must be like a, a series of questions or, or specifically that you can ask that lead to that, that epiphany moment. I think the way to do this, to get a little bit better at it, basically is to start understanding some of the types of questions that are good to ask. Uh, so so I'll, I'll share a couple of examples. of. I, I mentioned already the, um, the bright spots approach. That's really about saying, you know, if you always have problems for the Thanksgiving dinner, was there ever a Thanksgiving dinner that, that worked better or worked, you know, what was different about that? Um, another powerful approach I, uh, I really like is the one of looking in the mirror. And with looking in the mirror, what I mean is looking at your own role in creating the problem. But we just like we all human beings and we tend to, you know, if there's an issue, we tend to go like, oh, I'm the innocent victim here. And there are these idiots in my life that are creating chaos for me. But there is something powerful in saying, you know, in the family or maybe you have, you know, you work with a team at work that's not really doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, the question is really, you know, what am I doing? What, how am I creating this problem somehow? That it can just be very powerful to start taking a hard look in the mirror and, and questioning your own role. That's an angle we we tend to be blind to a little a little too often. Another thing, and I'll I'll share a fun story with that, is to rethink the goal you're trying to reach. Very often, when we have a problem, we kind of we focus relentlessly on the problem, but we don't necessarily ask, wait, what what does winning look like? What what What's the outcome I really want to achieve here? And that, that's surprisingly often the, the, the key to, to moving forward or to, or to reframing your problem. So a beautiful story of that comes from um, Robert Sternberg, who's, who's a big name in creativity research, about a, uh, it, it's, it's a leader at work. He, he loves his job, but he hates his boss. And so he goes to a, a headhunter and he gives the headhunter his, uh, his CV and he says, can you help me find a new job, uh, please, in the same industry so I can get away from, from this horrible boss? The same evening, the leader talks to his wife, and together they realize that there's a much better goal to pursue. And what he does the next day is he goes to the headhunter, but instead of giving him his own CV, he gives the headhunter his boss's CV and says, can you help my boss find a new job? And that, that ended up happening. Uh, the, the boss, uh, n not knowing about anything about this, gets a job offer, accepts it, moves away from the company, and the, the leader at the end of the day gets promoted into his boss's role. So a very beautiful example just of, of saying, what's the right goal to pursue here? Is it necessary that I need to get out of this company? Or would it help if I could you know, get rid of my boss in a positive way? We're talking about problem solving, and my guest is Thomas Waddell Waddellsborg. He's the author of a book called What's Your Problem? To solve your toughest problems, change the problems you solve. So, Thomas, what are some of the other questions you can ask that, that get you thinking along these lines? One very powerful uh, thing is really this idea of trying to take somebody else's perspective. So, you know, when we're talking about a problem, there's multiple people involved in it. There's this thing within research called uh, perspective taking. And that that's literally the ability to step into somebody else's shoes and understand how they see the world. Now, what's fascinating about the research is it shows very clearly that we tend to commit two big, two big mistakes when trying to understand other people. 
first of all, we just don't do it. Like the, the biggest mistake is we invest zero mental effort in trying to think about what might be going on in other people's lives. Like if my mother-in-law always is, is difficult at Thanksgiving, just asking the question like, wait, is there something going on in her life since, since this is occurring? Um, secondly, and that, that to me is the interesting one, even when we do think about what other people might be going through, our first guess tends to be wrong, even if it feels right. We, we tend to like be very quick at formulating some idea about, oh, here's what's going on. And you actually have to go beyond that and, and look for, is could there be a reasonable explanation for this? Are, are they actually just good people trying to do their best in a difficult situation? Instead of assuming, as we so often do, oh, they're idiots or they, they are out to get me or, or all of these things we just instinctively do. Isn't that interesting that this whole idea of, you know, put yourself in someone else's shoes, we're, we're not very good at that. No. But we think uh, we are. We think, oh, okay, well, yeah, I, I understand, but and I guess we don't really understand. I, I'll tell you about a striking example I, I experienced. I normally uh, teach reframing to adults, but at one point, a friend of mine who runs an, uh, an elementary prep school in the Hudson River Valley invited me up to try teaching problem solving to a group of five, six, and seven-year-old kids. And what's so fascinating is, if you ask adults so what type of problems do you think these kids had? You know, in the session, I ask them, pick a problem from your life that you want to discuss. And adults tend to think immediately, oh, this is about the iPad. They hate it when mom and dad takes away the iPad or bedtime or, oh, I have to go to school or the food I'm getting. I don't like it. Interestingly enough, and it was very powerful for me, when I saw the problems the kids actually picked, the parents did not figure in any of them. We, t we think in our own heads because, you, you know, that the, the bedtime is the kid's biggest problem because that's our biggest problem. That's the part about dealing with my kid that I struggle with the most. But actually, when you looked at the problems the kids picked, they had to do almost exclusively with friends and with siblings, brothers and sisters. I, a very memorable example, uh, that this was a young one, kind of saying... You know, my sister hits me and my family when she gets mad and you can't hit back because she's smaller than you. That, that was a quite cute example. Another one just went in and said, well, I have to audition at school sometimes and I get really nervous uh, because my friends are in the room. So it was so striking to me that even with, you know, with kids, with, with people that we, we've literally known them an entire lifetime, we still think, uh, we still tend to import our own problems and our own worldviews into the situation when we're trying to understand what they really struggle with. That, that's just, that was just so powerful for me. What's another example, like the elevator example you gave in the beginning of our discussion here, what's another example of solving a different problem that, that really illustrates this? The most powerful example I know of that is the story of the rolling suitcase. When we put wheels on suitcases, that happened in the year 1972. Or in other words, in the span of human history, first we put a man on the moon and then we put wheels on suitcases. That, that to me is just such a powerful example of the idea that sometimes progress is not about 
coming up with a fancy new technology or, or, or anything like that. Sometimes it just depends on looking at the people in your life and seeing if there is a basic problem that they've been struggling with for so long that everybody's become blind to it. Yeah, that, that is such a good example. And I've talked with people about that before. I mean, why did it take so long <laughs> to put wheels on a suitcase? And you look at old uh, videos or movies, pictures of people, you know, before then, uh, lugging around these heavy suitcases. Why did it take so long? I think to me, the most interesting thing about the suitcase story is actually what happens uh, a little bit later. Because, you know, when, when new ideas are coming in, there is sometimes some resistance to that. Uh, and, and, you know, when, when they decided to do that, they were a little bit afraid of like, where, are people ready to, to roll a suitcase instead of just carrying it? And it turned out they were. The first suitcases, though, they were kind of these square leather things for squeaky metal wheels. It was kind of, if you, if you were trying to walk with it, it was like walking with a drunken dog. It wasn't very stable. The crazy thing is, we, as, as you know, I mean, we, we came up later with the, the roller board, uh, which is just the idea of turning the suitcase on its side and adding a telescope pull so, so it's easier, easier to drag and more stable. That took us 15 years. That, that literally 15 years after the original idea, somebody said, ah, I think there's a better way of doing this. And I think one of the things that blind us to that is literally this this fixation on new technology and the future when we're when we're trying to make the world better very often it is like look at the things that are going on around you and try to see if there's a problem similar to the 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 rolling suitcase that's that's missing so wrap this up for me what's the the takeaway you think that people should get from this whole discussion about reframing problems it's really a thinking skill it's important to me that people don't fall too much into like a process trap of, of thinking like, oh, there's these like 18 steps you have to go through and so on. The second you go down that path, you just use it very, very rarely. So this is about to make it powerful. There, there are really two pieces of advice I have. One is just start doing this now. Like once you're done listening to this fantastic podcast, uh, go in and find a problem in your life. doesn't have to be a big one. And just start discussing that with, with, with other people. So, so instead of thinking you have to save this for the really big problems you run into once a year, just start building the habit and the practice of asking what's the problem we're trying to solve here and is there a different way of, of looking at that. And the second piece of advice I'll share is to, to tell the people you solve problems with, so that might be your family or somebody you work with, about reframing. Because what I found is it's a little bit difficult to do this alone. It is much more powerful and you'll have a lot more success with it if the people you tr you work with, they also understand what reframing is. So share this, the, share this podcast, share the slow elevator story or the suitcase story or whatever it is, just so they understand what you're trying to do when you start saying, wait a second, before we jump into solution mode, let's just discuss the problem for five minutes. Well, it's an interesting way to think. And, and really, it's kind of liberating that, you know, if you can't solve the problem, then change the problem and solve that one. Thomas Waddell Waddellsborg has been my guest. And the name of his book is What's Your Problem? To solve your toughest problems, change the problems you solve. There's a link to the book in the show notes. 
Thank you, Thomas. Well, thanks so much, Mike. Really, really enjoyed it. We all like to think that we look at the world objectively, that we make decisions based on the facts as we know them, that we're level-headed, thoughtful, careful. And boy, are we wrong in so many ways. You see, we humans have a lot of biases that twist and tweak our thinking and our decision-making. Sometimes it serves us well, other times, not so much. But what might help is understanding that you have these biases, what they are, and how they work. Here to help is Dr. Daniel Krawczyk. He's a professor of behavioral and brain science at the University of Texas in Dallas. He's co-host of the Mental Models podcast and co-author of the book, Understanding Behavioral Bias. Hi, Daniel. Welcome. Hi, Mike. Uh, Happy to be here. So let's begin by just in broad strokes here, explaining what behavioral biases are. Well, we have a lot of biases that we develop in life, and they really come from the way our brains process a complicated world around us. So when we talk about biases, um, they can be just shortcuts that we tend to take most of the time because they often work out for us. And when people talk about biases, they're usually talking about Uh, the benefit being we're efficient. We can get more done in less time, and we don't have to think so hard about each possible decision. Now, that's um, helpful a lot of the time, but occasionally we get really tripped up badly by sort of thinking too little about a particular decision or problem. And this is where biases can really hurt us. And uh, that's when we have to step back, reflect, you know, do some harder work uh, to think about something. And so I think of them as our brain's shortcuts um, that are sometimes helpful, but like shortcuts tend to do, we occasionally make a wrong turn. So give me an example, an everyday example of how that, how that plays out. Right. So a very easy example is called recency bias. And this has to do with our memory systems. We very potently represent uh, recent events. That could be what's ongoing today. Um, It could be just the fact that you're going to remember events from the past week much better than you do last month or three months ago. And so we tend to live in in the now. um, And this comes from our brain's circuitry. We we actually have different representations for uh, very recent events versus later ones. This can get into difficult territory with things like investing because there's so much news coverage. So we tend to pay a lot of attention to the news and we can start to risk over-representing w- what might happen based on just what we've taken in recently. And we do this, it seems, just because. I mean, it's it's just our natural reaction to think this way and not because we're doing it consciously, we're do well, we're doing it unconsciously. Well, this is what's so tricky about biases. That's right. You you can uh, sort of appreciate them when someone describes that you might be doing this, but in the moment, you know, we don't notice this because our stream of consciousness just kind of takes these shortcuts for us. And uh, this is why they're tricky. And so, so take me through an example of of how this might work. Okay, so you're getting a, a lot of different information on your phone. You know, your newsfeed is is clicking things out. And uh, let's imagine you're 
it, you were investing in, in, say, Equifax. And in 2017, Equifax had this big data breach, which was again in the news recently linked to China. And so all we can think about is this Equifax data breach and privacy and all kinds of bad things. And people predict the stock will go down. Everyone's panicked. The reality is uh, they're a relatively sound company. And so over time, the price held. And so that's an example of where we can panic too much because just recent information is on our minds and very potent in the moment. So you have to take a broad view. You know, just think about really how does this fit into the general picture of the world as it goes on and try to keep your, um, yourself from getting carried away. So talk about some of the different specific biases that, that we have. We may not even realize we have, but that we're operating with all the time. Well, for example, one of the really potent biases in our lives is known as the endowment effect. Whatever we own, whatever we have becomes extra valuable to us. And this is related to our personal history with it. So, for example, if you're investing in a company and you've held that company's stock for a long time, you have all kinds of memories about it and associations about it. And the risk is you get too attached and you have a hard time selling it. This can be true of our possessions as well. It's why we have, you know, storage units people rent because they just can't part with their things. And it's related to another bias called the sunk cost. So we all know about, uh, you know, when we've put in a ton of work on something, we hate to walk away from it because we've put in so much effort. And those really are related to our emotions. Both of them are what I would think of as memory biases because we've developed a history with either our possessions or our stocks. And it just becomes, you know, something we like and something that, uh, a lot of memories come to mind quickly. And so it can be very tricky to uh, sell things when we ought to. Talk about the, the framing effect or the framing bias. Imagine you're in a grocery store and you see meat that's advertised as 10% fat. That sounds terrible. <laughs> you don't want to buy it. But if you see meat that's advertised as 90% lean, wow, that sounds fantastic. I'll go ahead and make that purchase. Of course, it's the same percentage. Um, it's just how you say it. So it's, it's sort of the question, is the glass half empty or the glass half full? And words really do matter because they will highlight certain features of things. And it turns out uh, we fall for this all the time. So we, when we make kind of careless slightly thoughtless, fast decisions, we will be tricked by these frames. So you can see that in marketing and advertising all the time. Um, one of the things we noticed, we did a brain imaging study on this, and it turned out the amygdala, an emotional area of the brain, was linked to these kind of fast, automatic, frame-based decisions. And sometimes people would notice that there was trickery and they would, they would make a more rational kind of analysis and answer properly the same way for both kinds of frames. And the areas of the frontal lobes were active. Our thinking, our conscious uh, cortex was active. So you see, even at the level of the brain, you can find uh, evidence that these biases are very strong. So the advice there is just uh, think a little bit more carefully before you make a purchase, um, just to you know, really review your assumptions and make sure the wording isn't uh, in some way triggering you to take a shortcut. What's the hindsight bias? 
Well, hindsight bias is um, another tricky one. So they always say hindsight has 20-20. And what happens here is um, whenever something occurs, we feel as if we should have noticed it. And uh, it looks different you know, after the fact. And, and it, that's one of those distortions where we, we tend to maybe think we should have factored this in. Um, and the reality is sometimes things were predictable and we didn't notice they were going to happen. But sometimes things are very unpredictable and it's just kind of a freak occurrence. And um, what you have to do there, you know, don't, don't assume you, you were just being really uh, absent-minded and should have noticed this. Sometimes, especially in the complicated world of, of things like finance, um, you know, the world's just so complex, we can't always see it coming along. So uh, you can analyze uh, news and events in your life um, and just sort of acknowledge that maybe that wasn't foreseeable. It may not have even been probable. So another piece of advice we give for rigorous thinking is just to think in probabilities whenever possible, you know, just like we do with the weather. You know, there's a 60% chance of rain. It does not mean that it's a 100% chance. And if you just take that little step, it helps you to better realize, you know, not everything was bound to happen just because it, it happened to have occurred in, in, in the past. And the optimism bias? Well, this is a, another great one. Optimism is, is something we often think is, is really helpful in life, and it certainly can be. Um, it makes us feel better about uh, the future. And I think it's related to, uh, you know, our, our sense of optimism is, is that we, when we imagine things in the future, we see it working out. When you're doing something like investing, the optimism bias can be tricky because you tend to take too favorable a view of the future. And uh, it's a little bit sobering to have to think back, well, how could things go wrong? But that, of course, is what rigorous thinking is about. We have to make better decisions. We have to guard against uh, the dangers of the future. So while um, an eternal optimist may be happier overall, they, they can get very tripped up by this bias of overly uh, emphasizing the positive. Um, this is related to another colorful bias called the ostrich effect, like the proverbial ostrich that sticks its head in the sand uh, when bad news is occurring. And that's, of course, tricky also. It's painful to receive bad news, but we want to stay well-informed. And, you know, it, it applies all over the place, like in healthcare. Uh, people are worried about going to the dentist because they don't want to find that, oh my gosh, there's all these problems, it's going to be painful to fix. Um, so that's the ostrich bias. Uh, affecting our lives. And the reality is we just have to confront the, the here and now. Um, don't get too emotional about it. And we're always better informed if we take in the information. Well, that's, that's kind of a lethal combination because if, if you have the optimism bias where you think the future is going to work out and you have the ostrich effect where you, when, when you do hear bad news, you tend to ignore it, well, that just spells trouble. Optimism bias and the ostrich effect are, are very linked because when you get both of those biases going, you're, you're sort of really too, you're putting on the, the rose-colored glasses, so to speak, and being a little bit too um, positive and maybe ignoring some risks that are occurring in your life. Is it, is it human nature to, to look at the future with optimism? Is that just the way we're wired? 
You know, that's an interesting question. I, I think it would be what we'd call an individual difference. Some people just happen to to be a little bit more positive than others. Um, one, one of the things about our, our, our situation when we predict the future, though, if you just try to visualize, if you're going on a, a day trip, for example, you're going to imagine it being sort of a sunny day and you're going to imagine getting to everything on time. And we have a very hard time thinking through where are the curveballs, right? Because by definition, they're unexpected. And so those um, just are harder for us to notice, I think. And so, so just when we make a forecast, we, we often think it's going to be better than it really is. And uh, I guess that says something about our psychology, that it's, it's beneficial to think about the positive. Positive words are more memorable to us most of the time. However, and here's an interesting fact I just learned, um, if you're sleep-deprived, you tend to not remember the positive as much. You, you tend to actually have a better memory for negative things. So sometimes our state of mind um, can affect our optimism level as well. Well, and, and when you talk about uh, memory, one of the things that, that interests me about memory is how over time you can test it, how inaccurate it can be. Like if you go back to the house you used to live in as a kid, it doesn't look anything like you remembered it. It's smaller. It, it, the rooms aren't exactly the way you remembered them. Well, well, then what am I remembering? Yeah, that's right. It's always a little bit different. The, the, the house you grew up in always seems smaller, I, I think, just based on our you know, adult viewpoint in the cold light of day, so to speak. Um, memory has a a strange property. It's not a recording device. You know, we tend to think of our memories as these high fidelity audio and video recordings, especially things we can visualize easily. But then um, the reality is over time, we store what's what's known as a gist memory. So that, that sort of an abstract sense of what uh, the important things were. And our own personal perspective kind of gets infused into that memory so that whatever your interpretations were, you know, in your childhood will sort of um, color that memory of your house. And so memory is more of a sketch. It's like a sketch within our mind rather than being a video recording. And that's really important to keep in mind. And so when you have those disagreements with your siblings about what actually happened in your childhoods, keep in mind they're operating from probably a different sketch than you are. And likely the truth is somewhere in between. And when you go back to a house and actually see your possessions and things, you say, well, wow, that, that was actually different than I remembered it. What's the, uh, what's the primacy effect? Primacy is um, kind of the counterpart of the recency bias, which we talked about earlier. Anything presented in a memory experiment early on tends to be remembered. And uh, this is sort of like if you imagine uh, your first day of school is a lot more memorable um, in retrospect than the 30th day of school. And it's simply about maybe the novelty of the situation. So new events are highly potent for our memory systems. And additionally, we don't have as much interference. So as you repeatedly go to a school or the workplace, you start to build up all these similarities and everything kind of becomes melded together. 
And so that what happens on your 31st day interferes with the 30th day, which has had a lot of interference as well. So this is another bias which tends to occur. Whatever happened first, whatever happened early on in a situation will have too big of an effect. We're going to remember it a lot better than equally important events that maybe happened later down the road. So um, that's sort of a, a core lesson about the way our brains lay down memories. The early novel situations get remembered, as well as the very recent things that happen right now. So uh, that critical middle period, whatever happened, you know, not, not early, but not late, is, is often lost in the shuffle. You know, it's amazing with all these left turns that your brain makes for whatever reason, it's amazing we get anything accomplished. I mean, it's, it's, it, we, we're, we're not necessarily seeing the world as it is. We're seeing it through all these biases. Well, you know, the one thing I would say about that is we do press onward, and this is where biases may help us, because the world is so complicated. If we really took the time to, to reflect on everything we do, we'd just get a lot less done. So over time, you know, we, de we tend to develop pretty beneficial um, responses, automatic responses, and those biases are sometimes helpful. So that's the, what's lost in the uh, behavioral bias story is actually um, they provide us with um, a means of getting through our day and being relatively happy, as we've talked about. So, you know, that optimism bias is sometimes a good thing when we uh, just simply want to reflect on how our life is going. Well, it's, it's really interesting that we have these biases, and I think it really helps to identify them and name them and, and so we can recognize them when they, when they show up. My guest has been Dr. Daniel Krawczyk. He is a professor of behavioral and brain science at the University of Texas in Dallas. He's co-host of the Mental Models podcast and co-author of the book, Understanding Behavioral Bias. Thanks for being here, Daniel. All right. Great interview, Mike. Thank you very much. When you have a cold or the flu, doctors typically recommend that you get plenty of bed rest. So what's so great about bed rest? Well, for one thing, if you're in bed, you can't get other people sick, but there's more to it than that. According to the medical director of the Wellness Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, staying still is very important. Exercise is the enemy. When you limit mobility, your body has more resources to fight off your illness. Plus, when you exercise, your body temperature goes up. Flu and cold organisms replicate at a faster rate when the body gets hotter. Also, if you head to the office when you're sick, the stress of work can make it hard for your body to attack the illness. Another reason bed rest is recommended is that when you're lying down, blood flow doesn't have to work against gravity. But the doctor says any position where you're calm and inactive is fine. And that is something you should know. You know, we have a lot of listeners to this podcast, and if you, along with every other listener, would tell one other person about this podcast, well, we'd have a lot more listeners. So please share this podcast with a friend. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.